Well, good morning. Um, this is the fifth week out of six that we're going to be teaching on this Here We Stand series. And what we're talking about these six weeks is just part of what our whole intent is, which is to cover those doctrinal issues that are essential to our faith and our fellowship together. Uh, we're not only doing it for these six weeks, whether it's through Sunday school or whether it will be next year, we're going to come back with a, another series. We hope that if you stay with us for two years, that you will find that uh, we have covered most of those important essential doc doctrines, those things that we want to stand firm on, that we're willing to fight about, things that we would uh, even be willing to die for if the situation arose. Now, I'm talking about sanctification today, and most of you probably know something about the concept of sanctification but maybe some of you don't know the full biblical meaning of sanctification, how there really are three phases that are interconnected or go from one to the other as you make it through the sanctification process. You're going to find a little bit of overlap with what Mike taught last week about the gospel and salvation. It's really hard to separate those ideas from the concept of sanctification. And my goal today isn't just to tell you what the Bible says, but I hope you walk away today from today feeling that this idea of sanctification is really a real and practical idea in our walk of faith. And actually that you'll walk away thankful that God uses this concept, this process of sanctification in our lives and be more willing and enthusiastic participants in the sanctification process. So we're, uh, let me open in prayer. Lord, I just uh, pray that you would touch each of our hearts here this morning in a way that draws us closer to you. Pray that everything that is said here this morning will bring glory to you and show that you are the one who is at work in the sanctification process, that we can be thankful to you for that. Show us that. Help us come away with a thankful heart. We pray, Lord, that everything that I speak today will be accurate with respect to your word, that uh, you will open hearts and minds here today to hear what it is that you have to say with, to each individual person. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to start out here. Excuse me. I'm going to start out by looking at what a Bible dictionary that I have defines sanctification as, and that's a progress, progressive work of God and man that makes a person more and more free from sin and more like Christ. That's what probably most of you think about when you think of sanctification. It could also be more godly or holy, and it's very much related to what our Sunday school series just went over, this walking in a more godly way and becoming more holy, even though the world around us is trying to turn us the opposite direction. This is what most of you think about when you think of sanctification. But as I say, you're going to see today that there's a little more to it than that. And um, I'm equating becoming more holy with becoming more like Jesus. And we're going to look at a whole lot of scriptures today that you will see just that. And I'm saying that they are the same. We're called to be holy. We're called to be like Jesus. And that is really saying the same thing. And so why, why is that? Why is becoming 
like Jesus, becoming more holy? Well, most of you probably say that's pretty obvious. Um, if we look at what Jesus is like, what the Bible tells us Jesus is like, we can start by saying all the fullness of the deity dwells in him, from Colossians 1.19. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. And almost by definition, we would say, that makes him holy, completely holy, not an smidgen of no holiness in him. It's completely holy. And if we compare our condition to Jesus, we really see how far from holiness we are. And the Bible portrays a very good picture of Jesus to us. And there's many places we can look in Scripture but we can see that Jesus is our standard of holiness, and we can look at his life as it is defined in Scripture to see what we should be seeking as our goal. He is our standard, and he set a very high bar for us as to where we should be headed, what we should be pursuing. We know we aren't going to ever get there while we live in these bodies, but we at least know where we should be headed. Now, Paul, in... Philippians 2 gives us an idea of some of the things we should be pursuing if we want to pursue holiness or sanctification. I'm going to be using these interchangeably to some extent this morning. But Paul says we should have the mind of Christ or the same mind or the same attitude, depending on which translation that you're looking at. But we should have the same mind. And what does that look like in a person if that's what we're seeking? Well, some of these concepts coming out of that second chapter of uh, Philippians say, do nothing out of selfish, selfishness or conceit or pride. Consider others as more important than yourselves or ourselves and humble ourselves and give ourselves even to the point of death if necessary. There's even much more, and I'm sure we could uh, go down a much longer list. A few things, though, that I'll just mention that are that are not on uh, the screen, as Jesus said, that we should deny ourselves, we should take up our cross daily. We should, Paul said, uh, make ourselves living sacrifices. Jesus said we should come and follow him and learn from him and be his disciples. And being a disciple of Jesus is hard. Some of you may know uh, who Diedrich Bonhoeffer is. He was a Lutheran pastor during the time of Nazi Germany, and he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And at least some aspects of that book give us a good indication of just how difficult it is to be that follower of Jesus, to pursue the holiness that Jesus is calling in us. So we know we have this calling, and um, Jesus summarized all of it, really, with respect to loving others. When he said, what are the two greatest commandments, the second of those were to, was to love others as ourselves. And I think we can say all of this holy living can be summarized just in that, if we wanted to uh, look at a way to give a summary of, of what we're called to be. Now, let's look at a couple scriptures that make it very clear that God calls us to a holy life and to this sanctification process in us. From Romans 8, 28 and 29, this is a bit of a paraphrase, not much. I'm combining two verses into a shorter uh, way to say it here, that it's God's will for all who love him, who have been called according to his purposes to be conformed to the image of his son. So um, we know that we have 
been called according to this verse. Let's look at another one. 1 Thess 4, 3 and 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that we should control our bodies in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Can't get much clearer than these that this is God's will for us to move towards holiness through the sanctification process. Now, Peter also taught the same idea, and this was one of our key verses in the um, Sunday School series that we just went through. Every week we began by looking at something from the second epistle of Peter in chapter 3. While teaching people about the coming of Jesus could come at any time, we should be prepared for that. He said, well, what sort of people ought you to be as we await the coming of Jesus? He answered that question himself by saying we should be holy and blameless. And that would be from verse 14. But then he actually taught on this in his first epistle, too, from verses uh, 116, where he quoted from Leviticus here where he just said that we should be holy because God is holy. We should consecrate ourselves, we should separate ourselves, and we should be holy because God is. So again, not much question that scripture calls us to this idea. Now, is holiness possible on our own? I would say it would be very difficult to pursue holiness if it was all up to us. Is it realistic given our nature, given the fact that we have inherited this sin nature from Adam and we still live in bodies that crave to be satisfied in a way that in many cases would constitute sin? Now, in Romans chapter 7, that's the chapter where Paul makes it very clear that there's a battle raging within him. And he says that he has the desire to do what is good, but he cannot carry it out. For he does not do the good he wants to do, but the evil that he does not want to do, this he keeps on doing. He also said that there's this war raging in the members of his body against his mind and spirit. He paints a pretty bleak picture about his vulnerability and his tendency to sin when he really doesn't want to. He calls himself wretched. That's the term he uses in this chapter because he can't stop himself from sinning. But he recognizes something. At the end of that chapter, he does say that he's wretched, but he's not hopeless. He knows that God has really provided a way of escape, that he has a way to pursue holiness because God is working in him. And we're going to talk about how that works. That is this process of sanctification, that if it was all up to us, it would be impossible. But it's not all up to us. Sanctification is possible because God is at work in us. Now, to really understand the sanctification process, we need to go back to the starting point. What were we before sanctification began? Because it did begin at a certain point in time. Okay, so what were we like? Every one of us, every one of us who are saved didn't start there. We started in a place of darkness. We, John 3, 19 and 20 says that people love the darkness more than the light because their deeds were evil. 
and they would not come into the light for fear that their deeds would be exposed. When I look at myself and where I was, I'm a really good example of a person who looked good on the outside, but inside I was not good. I was pretty rotten. I was blind to the truth. My ears couldn't hear the truth. I couldn't see the truth. I didn't even recognize sin in my life. I didn't even, I thought I was, I was comparing myself to the people around me thinking I'm not so bad compared to them. I didn't realize my standard was Jesus, the one I should have been comparing myself to. I was really living in that dominion of darkness, not knowing I needed a savior. And um, I was far from God at the time. I did a good job of hiding what was really in my heart. I was a lot, I w- I was a lot like the church of Laodicea that Jesus wrote to in Revelations 3.17. I thought that I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but I did not realize that I was wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. There's that term wretched again. Uh, wretched, Paul called himself wretched. Jesus said those who were blind to the truth were wretched. We don't use that word very much anymore. Uh, in fact, I can't say I've heard it outside of the church ever. Probably most of you haven't. But what's it really mean to be wretched? To me, it means I don't even know that I'm sitting in a slime pool. You know, that I'm unaware of the fact that uh, my condition is so bad. That's wretched to me. You can maybe think of other ways. But, but when you don't know you're in danger and you're just dying and you're content to stay in that condition, that's wretched. That you're happy with where you're at. You're contented with it. But thankfully, despite my spiritual dead condition and all of yours at some point in your life in the past, God is a great God and and great mercy is part of what makes him God. And because he has such great mercy, he had a plan not to leave us there. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, Before the creation of the world, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight because he loved us. He predestined us for adoption to sonship, to, to become part of his family. Why did he do this? Because he loved us. And when did he do this? Before any of us were anywhere on the scene. He knew this was something that was in his plan. He made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions, when we were his enemies, when he knew we would be his enemies. He knew that he would also make these changes take place in us and save us out of that darkness. And that's what he did. Colossians 1.13 says that God rescued us from that unholy dominion of darkness and brought us into the light of the kingdom of the Son he loves. This was the beginning of the sanctification process, that time when a dead man was quickened and made alive. Now, do we have any responsibility in this? It's clear that God is the one who rescued us. He's the one. All these verses say that it's God who rescued. 
He's the one pulled us out of darkness. He awakened us from spiritual death. But do we have any responsibility in this whole process? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. We have to believe. We have to trust in him. Our belief is our part of this deal, part of this plan. So at the time when we were dead and couldn't see or hear and were blind, how could we believe? How could a dead man respond to a message? Well, even that is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 says that even faith is a gift of God. So where does our part come in? It's there. We had to respond still. God may have opened our eyes. Let's look at Revelation again. In Revelation, Jesus knocks at the door. The same church, Laodicea. Jesus knocks on the door, but we have to open in belief. That's our responsibility. There is a responsibility that we have, even though God is the one who opened our ears and let us hear the knocking. Or some can think of it this way, that God opened our eyes to see his outstretched arm to pull us out of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. His arm was outstretched, but we had to grab onto it in belief. So it is belief working together with God's awakening, his quickening within us. But that's when sanctification began in us. That time we believed, that's when we were born again. Now, some of you may know, well, most all of you probably know the song, Amazing Grace. We sang it last week. And I want to bring that up again because it is so critical. John Newton, who wrote this in 1779, was a former slave trader. And after his conversion, he wrote this song. And I'm just going to read quickly these few words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Here's that wretch again. He saw himself as a wretch. He was lost. But it was God who found him, and God led him home away from dangers, toils, and snares. That's another one of the passages or verses to this song. He was blind, but now he sees. It was God who made him see, but yet he still had to respond in belief to what he saw. Now, God began this good work in us when we first believed this verse from Philippians 1.6 actually talks about the three phases of sanctification in one simple verse. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He began the good work, and we're going to talk about a little more about what that means in that first phase of sanctification. He will carry it on. That's that ongoing process of sanctification, phase two, until he completes it on the day of Christ Jesus. And we'll talk about that third phase. So there's three actual aspects that we can think of in sanctification, and we're going to go through those some here. Now that first stage of sanctification, something happened in us 
at that time that we were born again. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, and that is what some of you were, referring back to meaning we were sinners, but you were washed or cleansed or purified. All those words are used in different translations. That's what went on in us, washing, cleansing, purification. You were sanctified. See, he's linking these all together here. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This really is the first phase of sanctification. This purification and cleansing, being made justified in the eyes of God. We were made holy in God's eyes because of the blood of Jesus, trusting in that blood at that point in time. That is something that is finished, that is done over, past tense. One time, it cannot be undone. We are sanctified, but you are being sanctified. We'll come to that. It's kind of confusing because we're using the same word. But the bottom line is, this verse saying you were sanctified is the part that's over. And we, because of that, are positionally holy in God's eyes. We are covered by the blood. We are reckoned righteous at this time. That's what that first phase of sanctification has done in us, a one-time event. Now, despite the fact that we are positionally sanctified in God's eyes, meaning we can't be lost, He will allow none who are his to be taken out of his hand, to be snatched out of his hand. There was a time in the past we had a a whole message on that security of the believer, which, which we believe very much in this church is true. But we're practically not sanctified, and that means enter phase two, this practical sanctification process. That definition we looked at right at the beginning is what we're talking about here. That's that lifelong process of being conformed to the image of Christ. That is what is going on in each one of you who have been born again, who have accepted Christ as Savior. That should be going on in everybody on a daily basis. Now, to help us understand that process of change that should be taking place in each of us, I'm going to look at the idea of carving a statue out of a block of marble. Some of you may recognize this picture up there. It's the top half of the statue of David, made by Michelangelo. And a lot of you probably know why I'm only showing the top half of the statue of David, because he didn't have any clothes on. And so I'm limiting it to the top half. But most people would say that this is one of the best works of art ever, in its perfection of of artistry. Now let's think about what he started with. Michelangelo started with a big block of marble. I'm sure he picked a really good block without defect in order to make this. When he started his work, he knew that David was inside the block of marble, that he was there. He was in there. But there was a whole lot of stuff that wasn't David that needed to be chipped away. It needed to be removed to reveal the real David, what was him alone. And his purpose as artist 
was to take away everything that was not David because he was in there. If David, the David inside the block of marble had feelings, it probably would have hurt as the chips occurred, as Michelangelo chipped away things that were not him. That's very much like what happens in a new believer. When that first phase of sanctification occurs, the new creature, new creature is there inside of you, inside of that flesh that still has desires to be satisfied, often with sinful practice. We are that unfinished statue that God is chipping away at in the sanctification process. He is at work on us. He is the artist. He uses trials. He uses discipline. He uses a variety of methods to chip away all that is not us, all that is not that new creature. Just like a father who disciplines his children to try to obtain changed behavior, God is at work in us during this second stage of sanctification, and it hurts sometimes. It hurts when he chips away something that we are holding on to very tightly. And the tighter we hold, the more we resist what he is doing, this work of the Holy Spirit in us, the more it's going to hurt. It'll hurt even if we don't resist sometimes, because when he works on us, these are things we don't want to let go of. Sometimes there are certain addictions, behaviors, and things that we just don't want to let go, but they're not part of that new creature, and God wants to chip them away, just like David did as he made the statue of David. We can resist the process, and it will just make things more uncomfortable for us. Now, when we get into this phase, the second phase of sanctification, a relevant verse is Philippians 2, 12, and 13. It says, work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, this does not mean work for your salvation. It means work from your salvation. And it's this concept of good works that, is part of what should be showing up as we become more like Jesus, more conformed to his image, to fulfill his good purpose. Now, in order to have this whole process go as well as possible in us, least pain, most progress, most maturity gained, we have to abide in Christ. If we are not connected, we're we're hopeless. We need to stay connected. We could do no good thing, it says in John, John says, without remaining in him. And we need to stay in the word. Jesus actually prayed in John 17 for his disciples to be sanctified. And how were they to become sanctified? By staying in the word. That's what Jesus said as he prayed for our sanctification. He gave the, one of the best ways to accomplish that, stay in his word. Now, we're in phase two still here of sanctification, and we are created for good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
Well, why do we do good works? Why is that important? Why should that be one of the fruits or the outcomes of us becoming more sanctified or more like Jesus? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I'll give you just a couple. One is to bring glory to God. That's our highest calling, our highest purpose. By doing good works, by letting our good works be seen by others, it brings glory to God when we're not ashamed of the gospel, as Mike talked about last week, when we let people know that the reason for what they're seeing in our lives is because of who we trust and who is our Savior. brings glory to God. Also, it shows that our faith is real. James talks on that quite a bit in his book. It also shows our love for God because we're obeying. These good works are showing usually that it is some form of obedience to God. So we're showing we love him. But because these good works accomplish these things, they are not part of Satan's plan. So Satan will try to hinder us while we're in phase two, while we're living in these bodies after salvation, Satan will try to hinder our service. He wants the opposite of what those things accomplish for God. So this spiritual warfare is real. This is what we talked about a lot the last five weeks in Sunday school. We talked about how our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. That's very much what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. Now, during this time of hindered service by Satan, um, we should expect persecution. Sometimes it's just oppression in our minds coming from Satan to try to turn us away from service. Sometimes it is another person who's being used by Satan to persecute us in one way or another. And I think we all know that the trends in the world today are such that if we stand firm in what we believe the most and are willing to stand up for what we believe, we will experience persecution, and it's only going to grow in our lives. Thankfully, during the same time that we are being hindered, we are also being blessed. God is blessing us during this time, and we, we ended Sunday school this morning talking about that talking about how the Holy Spirit or the fruits of the Spirit are blessing us and protecting us from these attempts to hinder our service. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. I think in Galatians 5, all of these blessings are coming at the same time as we, we become more and more mature in our faith and we submit more and more to the Holy Spirit. Now, that phase two lasts until we die or till one Jesus returns, one or the other. But phase three comes next. This verse here from 1 Thess 5.23 gives us an idea of what that third phase is. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we are saying this complete sanctification. This is the end of the process. And when does that happen? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means when he comes again, when he returns, something is going to happen that is going to complete the process of sanctification in us. 
we are going to receive resurrected bodies at that time. Everyone who is a believer, whether they have died or are still alive, when Jesus returns, those who are dead will rise first and they will be changed. They will be resurrected with glorified bodies. Those who are alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And Scripture says at that time, we, from 1 John 3, 2, we know that when Jesus appears, here it is again, when he returns, when he appears, comes back, we shall be like him. We are going to have glorified bodies, incorruptible, immortal bodies, that will last for eternity, and we will then begin spending time with Jesus in that reign, that thousand-year reign that is going to occur at that time. So that's when it is going to happen. Now, sanctification is for Christians only. A lot of you probably know people that you would say, I don't believe they're Christian, but they sure do live a pretty good life. I mean, they seem to be actually exhibiting some of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. They seem joyful. They seem to have self-control and good discipline. We could probably pick other reasons why we would say, maybe I don't know if they're a Christian, but they seem to be exhibiting Christian characteristics. You can do that. You can live that way and not be a Christian. It happens. There's a lot of people out there who have whatever it takes, self-control-wise or other personal characteristics, to live a, a life that we would say looks like a Christian, but they're not. The fact is, without belief, and this verse from John 1, 12 and 13, emphasizes who is part of God's family, who is a Christian, who is undergoing the sanctification process. All who did believe him, and that means Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. They are the only ones who have the sanctification process going on within them, who completed the first phase, and who have the second phase at work in them right now. This is not what's going on in a non-believer who seems to be living a good life. So really there are three phases of sanctification as we talked about, and that's what I want to summarize with, and then I've got a story at the end that I want to talk about. But let's just review, because this is what's key. In that first phase, that's when we were sanctified, and that occurred when we were born again, that is finished and permanent. We, are, we became positionally holy, we retain that position of holiness in God's eyes, we gained our citizenship in heaven, and, uh, and we can have hope because this is finished in us, this is done. We are in phase two. All of us who believe are in phase two and will be there until we die. And God's goal is to make us more and more like Jesus during this time that we live. We can resist or not. We can submit. And by resisting 
We're grieving the Holy Spirit. God is carrying this work on, but we can inhibit just how much progress is made in us. Or we can cooperate enthusiastically and become more mature believers and more bring more glory to God and just be more of what he wants in us. Phase three is what will come at some future date at the resurrection when Jesus returns. Could happen today, might not happen for another thousand years. We, we do look at the signs about us and think it may be coming sooner than that, but we don't know. And we should be, as Peter said, that we looked at earlier, as we await his return, we should live holy because he might come today and we would like to f see him find us that way. Now, I'd like to end with a story from a C.S. Lewis book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I bet a lot of you are familiar with this stor story. Um, it's a st the part that I'm going to talk about is a story about one of the main characters, and his name was Eustace. And he was a really nasty boy. Other terms that I've seen used is like rotten. <laughs> and um, he wasn't afraid to do something that uh, really was very selfish and harmful to others. And in this story, he turned into a dragon. And that was really an outward manifestation of the inner conditions of his. Those inner conditions, and I didn't mention this earlier, but I will now, um, he had a heart that Jeremiah described as desperately wicked, which, you know, really all of us were there too with that, deceitful, wicked. But his inner greed and selfishness in this story resulted in him turning into a dragon. And he was suffering pretty bad. Uh, he'd been cut off from his family. He had this gold bracelet that was still on his big dragon leg, and it was hurting really bad. And uh, he feared he was going to be a dragon the rest of his life. And he was beginning to weep. He was actually beginning to have his eyes opened by God. And on the scene shows up Aslan, the big lion, who represents Christ in the story. And he shows up and tells Eustace that to become human again, he has to bathe in a nearby pool of water. But first he has to scratch off some of the dragon scales. So Eustace, uh, really wanting to change, starts scratching some of the scales off, and he used the term, he said, that was a lovely feeling to scratch some of the scales off, but as soon as he tried to get into the pool, he turned right back into dragon. All the skin appeared back where he had scratched it off, and he tried this a couple times, and it didn't work. He realized that he couldn't remove his dragon skin himself, but he was pretty desperate. Uh, he was just really feeling awful as to his condition. And despite the fact that he feared Aslan, his claws, he, at that point, was so desperate that he finally submitted. He laid flat on his back and let Aslan do what he would do with him to bring about the change that was needed in him that he wanted. Here is some of the words from Eustace. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. 
The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I'd no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. Then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Well, this story about Eustace really emphasizes that we really can't change ourselves when we're spiritually dead. We can't save or sanctify ourselves alone. We need God's help. Even though we have to believe, we need God to help us with this process. Phase one, two, and three of sanctification requires God's help. Eustace had really gotten to that point where he longed to change, but even his ability to see what was going on in himself and not to be content in that as he was initially really took God's help to open his eyes to where he was and who could help him. That's really what goes on in sanctification. The first phase of sanctification, God opened our eyes as he did Eustace's. That was the beginning, and we're still in the process, and we still need to submit. Otherwise, the sanctification that's occurring in us to conform us to Jesus' image is going to be limited. The more we submit, the more we will become like him. Eustace was given clean and new clothes to wear, just as we are when we accepted Christ. Aslan began the good work in him just as God began it in us. But we can cooperate or we can resist the continuation of the sanctification process. Thankfully, again, we have the blessings that come with the trials and the discipline while we're being sanctified. God lessened our burden. Jesus said that. His burden is lighter. We now have that lighter burden to follow after him. But he will. It is a difficult process still. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. And uh, all of us just need to trust God in his work with, with us in sanctification. Lord, we, uh, we do thank you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that you have changed us, that you have washed us clean. You've given us this new beginning to walk with you and that you're going to be there with us to carry on this process. Help us, Lord, to submit fully to this work that is going on in us, to allow you to make changes in us, to mature us, to bring us more into the image of Christ. Help us to be the people you want us to be so that we can bring glory to you and that we can then change others too by you using us as your tool, by those works that we will do only because you are at work in us. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. We thank you that we can look forward to the hope of the completion of sanctification process in us 
at some date in the future. And we just thank you for that promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.